So welcome to the podcast. This is Peter, your host. Uh, thanks for coming in today. I do have a, a guest today that has uh, another podcast, and we're gonna, I'm going to have him talk about that as well. There's a lot of great information out there. There is a lot of important information on his podcast or on his website. So I'm going to definitely have him promote that and put that out there. I'd like you to get out there and visit that, support them as well. Uh, it is called, go ahead, Casey, and tell us what it's called. Sure. So uh, I have a podcast called Addiction and the Family. I was trying to enunciate that, or it sounds like addiction in the family. It's addiction and the family. Addiction and um, the family, yep. And then I've also published two books, one of them called Realistic Hope, the Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions, and the second one that just came out a couple weeks ago called Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality. And both of those are intended to help people in their recovery journey, and that's kind of what got the podcast going. As I was going to write the book, and I thought, well, I need to promote the book. You know, you want to do a little promotion before we actually put the book out. So I thought, well, I should go do podcast interviews. And I woke up the next morning and went, oh, man, no, what I should do is start a podcast. Start a podcast. <laughs> that going on, yeah, I need to be the host of a podcast. And now i found I'm doing both. So I'm the host of a podcast, and I go out and do podcast interviews. It's actually really, really beautiful. It's yeah. an interconnected web of people doing this kind of work. Gotcha. And it's so funny how you say, you know, uh, we we have to use these words like promote the book or hosting this podcast. And what it's really um, promoting is is a better way of life. Uh, we know addictions out there. We're letting people know. We're educating. You're educating people as well as I to the horrors of addiction. Uh, family is a huge thing. And so I love the name of your uh, podcast, you know addiction and the family because I've always kind of realized and tell me if this has been your experience you know addiction just doesn't want me you know it's looking to capture me take me hold me and then when it gets tired of me kind of it's going to hang on but it's going to go after sister brother mother father or vice versa you know has that been your experience as well I would say addiction absolutely runs in families. And what we know from research thus far, uh, the estimates vary between about 40 and 60%. So we'll round it off and say 50% of addiction is genetic. And there's not an addiction gene where, like, if you have this, you're hosed. If you don't, you're fine. It's actually a whole cascade of genes. And I'm not going to get everyone's eyes to glaze over with that, but simply to say that there's a lot of genetic factors that go into it. But you can really see certain genetic markers that people have will cause them to react more strongly to using chemicals. So there's an obvious genetic factor. Mm -hmm. But then you also run into things like people who are more prone to anxiety or more prone to depression. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when do we feel these things most strongly is going to be in adolescence. And so you run into an awful lot of people in that early range of adolescence, which can start as early as eight years old and maybe start as late as 16. But somewhere in there, as our brain chemistry changes, as we're willing to take more risks, and as we often feel those emotions more deeply than we may at any other time in our lives, somebody comes along and says, here, drink this, snort this, smoke this, hit this vape pen, you'll feel better. And what do you know? It works. It works beautifully. The anxiety vanishes. The, the uh, tension goes away. You know, all those mental health issues seem to even themselves out. The voice is dim. Whatever it is that's going on for you, plus you may have those genetics where you react more strongly to something 
And so most kids at that age, in America at least, are going to try some substances or behaviors because we know also from research that addiction can show up with things like sex and love and gambling and food and shopping, all these kinds of things. And sometimes we're first edging into those activities, again, around that same age, age, edging into adulthood, putting our toes in the water to see what it's like. Well, a certain number of us are walking into a trap. Now, if you add trauma on top of all of that, then people are in really big trouble. So we have all this stress on the brain. Addiction presents itself not as a problem, but as a solution. And so initially, we found this magic thing that solves our problems. Everybody was lying to me. Turns out this stuff is great. And then one day we go to stop, you know, often towards the end of adolescence, say 24, 25, 26 years old. Um, we think like, man, this is not working anymore. It's time for me to settle down. I want to do better. And we can't. It turns out it's not so easy to just stop for a certain percentage of the population. And I count myself among those. It's the people where when I thought, you know, time for me to slow this down a little bit, I found that I didn't, or really the experience in my brain is that I couldn't. So recognizing how prevalent that is within families, to recognize, you know, the very rare that I've ever seen anybody where there's just one person with addiction in the family. It's often one person who's the identified patient. Everybody looks at them, says, you're the problem. You know, if you were better, we'd all be fine. And then come to find out two of the uncles, one of the aunts, all of the grandparents, you know, you name it, have struggled with some form of addiction. And uh, we just see how the genetics, but also the family patterns, the communication style, those interactions can also get passed down from generation to generation. In fact, the genetics might skip a generation or two, but the family patterns and communication styles don't. They get passed down person to person, and that's one of the things that really inspired me to do family work, uh, which is a big focus in, in just the work that I do as a clinical social worker and addiction counselor, is working with families, and I do that all the time, because often families don't even realize how much they've been affected, let alone that there's help available. Gotcha. Wow, that's great information. That is, yeah, I am going to have to definitely play that back for sure. Now, with that information, the genetics, the environmental, obviously, with the, the family and growing up in uh, early stage traumas, I always see that as kind of the first use of a chemical is typically, um, I've always saw it as a, our first attempt to even self-medicate. And then I've seen where, yes, it fills in that hole. It completes, it completed me in my journey uh, when I first did uh, chemicals. Um, I felt like I was a whole person. And of course, then it's great for a while. And then all of a sudden it, addiction does what it does and it turns on you. So what is your background kind of in all of that? Where do you fall with the genetic, the environmental and things like that? You know, what was your journey like, uh, you know, growing up and coming up? Absolutely. Thank you for asking. So <clears throat> I'm going to say I was born into addiction. Um, in fact, I say it semi-jokingly, but it's actually true. Is I was conceived in addiction. Um, both of my parents, my birth parents, show signs of sex and love addiction and one of them can claim that. The other one's like, well, no, I don't really see it, which is fine. That's, that's their own deal. Um, but I will just say that they uh, met when they were fairly young, got pregnant on the first date. That's me. And, um, you know, decided to get married. 
all that, uh, which they apparently did before they figured out they were pregnant. So they were kind of just, you know, met each other, hooked up, figured this is the right thing. They're going to get married. Lo and behold, the kid is on the way. And uh, apparently about four days after they got married, my birth mother went on and had her first affair um, and continued that pattern of sex and love addiction. So she ran off with someone else. This is something that would happen periodically. She might just sort of vanish. And of course, if I do the math, she would have been pregnant in those early days. So I actually went along on her first affair and got indoctrinated right into this is this is what we're doing around here. And then uh, there was some early childhood sexual abuse from my birth father and just sort of all the dynamics that go around addiction. Um, you know, there's a lot of emotional, emotional distance, flashes of anger, physical danger. And I want to point out that in the midst of all of this, they were really doing their best. They were trying to be good parents. They were loving. They took me on walks. We went to the park. We took pictures together. You know, it's sort of all these things are happening at the same time. And I think this is part of the journey for a lot of people is that uh, things that are really, really destructive and abnormal are mixed in with things that are very constructive and normal and loving and good. And so I start to get this really, I think, mixed up idea of what life is supposed to look like. Now, by the time I was about two and a half or so, they had come to the conclusion that they were not doing a great job as parents. Now, I want to say, first of all, that's partly the result of like mental health, depression on my mother's part, all this kind of stuff going on. But it's also a really, really courageous choice to make. It's not easy to say, maybe I'm doing such a bad job of raising this child, someone else would do better. But they both came to that conclusion, and they set up a sort of secret option. I was about two and a half at this point, which is to say that they didn't let anyone in their family know this was happening. And so, of course, there's no real way to explain it to a two-year-old either. So I was just sort of taken away one day and it took me about six months to figure out, like, they're not coming for me. Hmm. And the real flash that happened for me at that point, at the, the ripe old age of about three years old, is I decided, as soon as I figured that out, I decided I was on my own. Like, okay, I guess it's me against the world. And um, for most people at three years old, me against the world is not a great like equation, the odds are not very good. And so there was a lot of emotional distress and I set about trying to escape. That was part of my mission in the world is to just ramp up the adrenaline. Uh, what I'd say in a clinical term now is dissociate, which is a fancy way of saying tune out. And I just set out to tune out as much as I could. Is so at three, at that moment when you realize that thing, that they were not coming back, you know, of course, you know, obvious abandonment issues there, but, um, was that your f kind of some of your first memories or did some of these picture takings walks kind of come later or what was like your first well, memory? So, um, for a while that stuff would have been, I think my first memories actually would have, that stuff would have been buried in my first memories would have been much later and most mm -hmm. people form narrative memory more around like 46 years old yeah but through the therapy that i've done uh primarily through emdr 
um, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which is gaining a lot of traction. It's been around since the 70s, but it's gaining a lot of traction for trauma therapy. Mm-hmm. And also variations of internal family systems therapy, mm-hmm. um, which probably the most famous sort of chunk of that would be inner child work, but it's not limited to that. Um, and I worked with some really talented therapists. And in that process, some of these memories would resurface. So I had the memory of the early childhood sexual abuse. I had the memory of realizing that I was on my own. And I actually had a flash of memory because that's really all you get in infancy. I've actually had two flashes of memory from infancy, both of which were kind of got outside confirmation um, of being able to say, wow, how do you remember that? But yes, that happened. And the very earliest of those was between one and three months old. Um, and in that memory, I'm nursing with my birth mother and I'm looking up at her. And the thought that I have in my brain is I need to keep her attention for as long as I can. And I need to get as much as I can, as fast as I can. And if I look at that, that's the template for like the next 30 years of my life right there. Mm -hmm. Um, and when I went back and took that to my birth mother and said like, so I remember this because we're back in contact. We actually have a really lovely relationship now. That took a lot of therapy too, but we got there. And uh, she said, well, to tell you the truth, at that time, uh, so that I could nurse you, they took me off the antidepressants, which were early generation antidepressants in the late 60s here. And so she said, the only time I could feel connected to you was when we were nursing. So what I put together out of that is as an infant, I would know on some level we're not really connecting and bonding the way we should, Hmm. except when we're doing this one thing. And so I made that association that I need to just grab onto this experience. It's rare. I need to get it while I can, as much as I can, as fast as I can. And like I said, that set up the template. I can look at that and say, wow, there goes a life of addiction right there. So the genetics plus those experiences and then my own reaction to them. And that's an important piece of the puzzle. It's not just our genetics and what happens to us, but it's how we react. We actually call that the biopsychosocial model. So biological, that's all the genetics. Social is actually shorthand for all of your external events and experiences. And the psychological part is how I react to that. And I make a big deal out of that because I talk about this with my clients all the time. You know, things that happen are not traumatic because they're inherently traumatic somehow. They're traumatic because we react to them by changing the way we believe who we are, our level of safety, where we fit in the world or don't, all of those things. And probably some of the most profound ones are when we decide that it means something different about who we are. And it seems like a really basic human reaction to trauma is to think, what did I do? Should I have done something differently? And I think that's just a simple protective mechanism to say, well, if I figure out my part in this, then I can avoid it in the future. But when traumatic things happen, like being put up for adoption, like childhood abuse, like terrible car accidents, some of which, you know, like childhood surgeries, these are like life-saving things, but for the child, they're really scary. And we can just simply come to the conclusion that there's something wrong with me, or I'm damaged goods, or I'm just not safe in the world. And those decisions, those reactions, really go on to define a lot about our personality and actually how our genetics will express, and thus our experience of the world from there, we build on that as a foundation. And that's what I think causes a lot of the stress that later people try to relieve with addiction. 
So, and obviously in, in your course of your early life and teens there, that's when your addiction uh, really got going or because we know when about it was we know when it was about, born yeah. right about 10 years old it blew up um yeah i had a i had a neighbor across the street who was 16 <clears throat> who uh, had a collection of pornography and said yeah i'm not into this anymore i'm gonna, i think i'm just gonna throw it away and at 10 years old i said oh, i'll take that mm-hmm. you can just slide that over my way um you know, as I became more romantically and sexually interested, which I'd always been to some extent, probably more than the average kid, which again, probably partly genetic, partly experiential in my own reaction to that. Um, I really launched into a deliberate life of sex and love addiction. And I would not have called it that. Like I would never put the word addiction on it. I just thought this is who I am. Mm -hmm. Because again, I didn't relate it to my childhood experiences. I just thought this is me as a human being. Um, later I discovered that alcohol could sort of grease the wheels and, and make all this easier and, uh, make it easier and more relaxed to be around people, facilitate my, that sort of core addiction. I certainly had some issues with food, but I had really high metabolism. So that wasn't obvious and didn't like blow up. I had all that sort of adult child of alcoholic stuff going on. I had codependency going on. I was, I was a mess. <laughs> I had weird ideas about money. I mean, you name it. There were lots and lots of things that came up. Um, and so I just charged out into the world thinking, well, this is my fate. This is just who I am. And so naturally I kind of gravitated towards people who could connect with this in some way. And, and, um, so I met a really wonderful singer and lovely young woman when I was about 20 or so. And some of my sex and love addiction stuff came up. Of course, I started to get a big crush on her and I thought oh man I'm gonna ruin this great singer-songwriter recording partnership we have going on and uh instead we got married we've been together for 33 years now and about 10 years into our marriage the first 10 years I was just still going full speed in fact speeding up getting worse and again never putting the word addiction on it I just thought and it's it's funny to me now but I look back and I thought I was just cooler than most people like the rules of the little people did not apply to me. I was better, smarter, faster, whatever justification. Sure. And underneath that, I thought I was a terrible, monstrous scum of a human being and worse than everybody. So I would go back and forth between I'm better than everybody, I'm worse than everybody. But one way or the other, I did not imagine I could just be like everyone else. I couldn't just sort of fit in the world um, until the behavior was getting so bad that I went to go see another brilliant therapist because I had tried to hide this as much as possible for the first one, so I didn't get any any help then. Uh, but my second really brilliant therapist, I went in, and I was actually trying to find a way to basically cheat on my wife, but have it be okay with her. And I thought a therapist might be able to give me some advice on how to do this, which is hilarious, of course. So I showed up, and in the first few minutes, she said, have you ever heard of sex addiction? And I'm like, no, I didn't know that was a thing. Well, as soon as she said it out loud, it was kind of obvious that that was, that was me. And so that's when I started into addiction. So that's 24 years ago, starting into recovery. And, um, you know, again, I came into recovery, not really wanting to get anything. I just wanted to stop losing things. My daughter was two years old and I thought like, okay, I'm not going to raise my kid. I'm probably not going to keep my job. If I go off too far to the right or the left, I'm going to end up in prison. I'm certainly not going to stay married to the same wonderful woman. 
Um, and I just thought like, okay, I've got to do something. So I was recommended that I start go to recovery meetings and I did. And I started exploring my first recovery fellowship and talking to other people who could relate to what I was going through and didn't back away slowly, but instead shook my hand and said, it's going to get better. It's going to be okay. Mm. And, um, lo and behold, they were right. And I remember my first meeting, somebody said, you know, right now it feels like you're trying to push boulders around, but you're going to break those rocks up. They're going to get smaller and smaller. And one day you'll be sifting through the sand looking for gold. And at the time, I think I just kind of stared at him. I had no idea what he was possibly talking about. I could just sort of see his lips move. All I caught out of the whole thing was it gets better and keep coming back. So I did. And now 24 years in, I can look and say, I know exactly what he's talking about because I feel like I'm at that point now where not that everything's perfect all the time or I have no issues, but it feels more like sifting through the sand for gold than it is getting crushed by anything. Right. That is one of the miracles. Yeah. Or, you know, pushing so hard against the, against the mountain, trying to, you know, trying to move it. Um, so it's funny how we built, you know, this life and you're like your polar opposites where you were better than anybody than you were, you were, you were not, you know, and you, you kind of balance those and it's kind of where that, you know, there's the shame comes in and we're so ashamed of, who we really are and we've been hiding all of that for all of those years um it, that's where the shame is and and there you know there that's kind of a battle for me today where i'm working on some of that that was, uh my therapist asked me the question you know where that comes from right that thing you just said and i'm not not quite sure she so goes that comes from the from that that shame that early you know some of that early shame stuff and um so but then we come in to this <clears throat> almost something that we've been searching for a fellowship and one of the first things they ask us to do is trust <laughs> and trust not my huh not my strong suit at that time <laughs> exactly right so for the listeners hearing this it's trust is a is a really beautiful word it's a good word and they don't uh they don't it's they ask you to trust the process and it's up to you to say okay I'm going to I've trusted other things before so I can trust this um and you'll see that light and just keep walking toward that light I I had told somebody this last night is you, know, you keep walking toward that light and more will be revealed it's and it and we hear these if you hear those whatever the slogans and the these pieces uh, more will be revealed and trust in the process and you'll be digging for gold it, um it's very real those are very real things that actually really end up happening to us if we have that one requirement out of Everything we've ever gone through, and that one requirement always is, we gotta have that desire to stop using the addiction. We have to have the desire, and we may lose the desire for a day or two, but we gotta come back to that core thing. Would you agree, kind of with? Oh yeah, that? absolutely. And that whole idea of trusting—you um, know—trust the process. 
trust somebody to mentor you through the process who you've never met before in your life. Uh, some would say, you know, some of the recovery fellowships are going to be more spiritually based. And they'll say, okay, trust a higher power. And I'm coming into this stuff going, look, I don't trust anybody. Because remember, three years old, I knew I was on my own. Like, I was a social person. I'm a very extroverted person. I love people and talking with people and hanging out with people and exchanging ideas with people. But at the end of the day, especially at that time in my life, I was keeping my own counsel. So as I moved forward and, yeah, that very first meeting, they were saying, like, okay, hey, well, it's a spiritual solution. I'm like, uh-huh, yeah, no, I'm going to skip that part. So what else you got? Um, so I looked at the process that was laid out in front of me, and, uh, and I said, okay, I'm going to skip all the parts that relate to spirituality, uh, let alone use the word God. Mm. But over time, what I found, uh, first of all, is that it's a very open-ended process in terms of your spirituality can be whatever you want it to be. And some people though, got maybe to the point that I got, which is the people would take the word God and use it as an acronym, the G-O-D. And one of the first acronym forms of that might be gift of desperation. And that's what did it for me was I wasn't showing up because I was excited. I was showing up because I was desperate. And I never would have thought of that as being a gift. It felt like one of the worst things ever happening to me. But I can look back now and say, I am so grateful that I was that desperate because that desperation opened my mind up enough to say, okay, I don't like what you're offering but I'll try it anyway because I sure don't like what I'm getting now. And as you said, we place our trust in other things. I had complete, full faith in my addiction for a very long time. I knew that sex, love, alcohol, money, you know, if I had more of everything, then I'd be okay. Except it was never enough. And it was reliable. It was it dependable. Was and we knew, well, we knew what we were going to get when we got there. And it wasn't always it rarely was good but it was this thing we just became accustomed to and comfortable with as dark as it can get for whatever reason we just couldn't get away from it some you know but once we got to that place where we can see forward finally then we start realizing oh boy that comfortability factor that I've built over these years, it's really not that comfortable. It's really, really tearing everything apart. And by your story, you were on the verge or possibly could have lost everything. The money, the cars. Yeah, I'm the, one of the lucky you know. people. It's funny because I'm a lucky person in that I didn't lose everything coming in. But where that wasn't so lucky is because I still had uh, you know, a house and two cars and a picket fence and a dog and a wife and a kid and good job and, you know, run down the list. I still had everything when I came in. Right. I wasn't as desperate. I was still kind of sure that I could beat the system. Like, okay, I'll show up. I'll do this. I'm supposed to go to meetings. Fine, I'll go to meetings. You know, you're going to say a prayer at the end of the meeting. Yeah, it's not for me, but I'll maybe I'll mumble the words along or I'll just stand there and be respectful, but I'm not going to participate. I kind of kept a little bit of distance because I was still special Casey. Uh, but over time coming back to the meetings and watching people struggle and watch myself struggle, watch myself really struggle to put together continuous lasting recovery. Cause I could get sober for six months. I could get sober for a year or something, maybe a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And then I'd be back in picking up another 24 hour coin, which people go to some of these meetings, they'll give out little coins or some call them chips for like lengths of sobriety. And you know, when you've been in the program for five years and you're picking up another 24 hour chip, it's kind of disheartening. 
Mm. So I eventually got to a point um, about seven years into the process or so where I was like, you know what? I'm tired of picking up 24-hour chips. Like, enough of this. What am I not doing? And that's where I started to really dig into, I'm not really doing the spiritual part of this at all. And that's really what inspired me to write this second book that I wrote, uh, The Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality. It's not really intended for everyone only if they hate spirituality, but I find a lot of my target audience that really gets it, they start laughing when they hear the title. I'm like, if you laugh and you hear the title, this book is probably for you. Because that's what I needed. Um, And it got me, you know, in the book I kind of talk partly about my own spiritual journeys, but I'm also a science guy, so a lot of references and scientific studies and stuff like that because it's important for me that this makes some kind of sense but one of the things that i also found uh, was really interesting in the research because of course i learned a lot in writing the book is that the spiritual part of our brain and the logical part of our brain are located in two completely different areas and they'll interact but they're not the same part so if i really try to like figure out my spirituality using logic and science i'm going to miss the mark because I'm not going to get to a spiritual experience through doing that. By the same token, if I only live in the spiritual part of my brain and don't use the logic at all, I'm probably going to stumble into some really bad situations because unfortunately there's a lot of people out there that will take advantage of that and say like, hey, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, come on in. I have redemption right over here. I have spiritual, I have everything. All it takes is all your money and everything you've ever had and you know, dedicate your life to me and sign over the deed to your house. So finding that balance uh, makes a lot more sense for me, but one of the things that I thought was really interesting that I found in the research is that um, a really good number of scientists say they see no conflict um, in doing the scientific research that they do and believing in a higher power having a spiritual life. But what struck me even more is an even a higher proportion of scientists, whether they believed in a spiritual way of life for themselves or not, said, really, they're two completely separate questions. So there's a ton of scientific research showing what spirituality can and can't do for you, what's effective and what's not, um, what types of prayers seem to work the best for people. And by the way, I'll give you a spoiler here. It's not praying to the right entity in the right way. It's actually what you pray for that makes a huge difference. If you pray for guidance, that works really well. Mm-hmm. If you pray for somebody to have a certain health outcome, it will benefit you, but you can't really demonstrate that it's going to benefit the other person. Mm-hmm. So praying for other people is really effective if you're the one doing the praying. Uh, I'm, I'm saying it certainly can't hurt to pray for the other person, sure. put good wishes out into the world. Um, but praying for wealth, success, things like that, uh, far we know kind of a coincidence if that works out so like praying for stuff and outcomes and intervention does not seem to do a whole lot but praying for guidance does wonders and so I focus on that more in this particular book and talk about two way prayer and all that kind of stuff you know that spiritual life and two way prayer to some of the early members of the foundations of 12 step recovery and Alcoholics Anonymous some of the early founding members would have told you that two-way prayer, that idea of asking for and receiving guidance from a higher power through written meditation and prayer, would be more important than going to meetings. It, to them, it was the basis of recovery, was every day getting up and saying, I'm going to try and be in touch with my higher power. Whatever that is, 
what, however I understand it or misunderstand it, as long as I'm reaching out and asking with an open heart, what do you want me to do? And then the early members would compare this, though, um, and this goes back to the Oxford group before AA. Mm-hmm. They would compare that to their list of what they call the four absolutes. So things like absolute love and absolute honesty and this sort of thing. And so they would look at the answers they got as kind of a litmus test and say, does this seem loving? Does this seem honest? Is it pushing me to be loving? Does this guide, guide me to be honest? That sort of thing. And so I kind of did a variation on that in my own life and, and again, put this in the book, which is make a list of the qualities that you want in a higher power, which loving and kind and honest certainly show up for me. Good sense of humor, good guidance, kindness, caring. And so when I'm doing my own prayer and asking for that guidance, then I compare it to that list and say, uh, and, you know, in other words, am I just telling myself what I want to hear? Well, a lot of times if I'm being challenged to grow, if I'm being told to be more loving, more kind, more compassionate, more giving, all those kinds of things, then I'm probably heading in the right direction. What I'm hearing here probably is, in fact, the guidance of my higher power. And that can be really life-affirming and sustaining. And, by the way, when I'm feeling those feelings and I'm seeking that guidance, it's not so tempting to go back into my addiction at all. So it's pretty cool stuff. That is really cool stuff. It's. I I wrote it. I jotted it down real quick, and it said, um, "When we got there, and we were standing there, whether we were we were desperate, to whatever degree that might be, and we heard that word spirit, or they said the word spirituality, and then we heard religion, and mm-hmm. um, that's what I heard." And I was, I grew up in the Catholic Church and it was, you know, had its strict and had its many things that uh, happened with me with it. Um, But I had a little bit of a tussle with trying to get to that spiritual part of the program, but I wanted it so bad that I embraced it and I didn't want to, I didn't put a label on it. I just said, you know what? I believe that there's something greater than me that can do it. And a lot, it's almost like, I remember the, you know, how you create roadblocks uh, to prevent you from going forward in the program, which you had some. I'll do this, I'll do that, but I won't do that, but I'll do this and that. So we have these roadblocks there. Once we, once I got the spirituality part and... Uh, didn't put any titles to it and really started working this process, um, I started building roadblocks that prevented me from going backwards. Oh, and, nice. That's beautiful. And I, love and I could really tell the difference. And so I was lucky enough not to have a relapse. <clears throat> I was lucky enough to get there and because I saw this one, I saw this thing. And uh, we can talk about that maybe, you know, off the off the podcast. But um, sure. I saw that one thing and I, and I, I knew I wanted it. And so for folks listening to this, there is a way to a better life, a better. Uh, really, that's it, a better life. But you got to look for it. And once you see it, grab it. 
There's a lot of help out there. Now, I would like you to go over one last time your... Uh, I want you to go to Casey's website, listen to this podcast, look at the list of the interviews that he has done. Um, there is a lot of information in there, a lot of good information in there. So um, let's have it one more time, Casey, the name of the website, which sure. I love. Well, well let me do the, it. Yeah. So also the podcast is called Addiction and the Family. You can find it on any podcast app, but if you want to look at it through a web browser, you can go to addictionandthefamily.info, like information. So addictionandthefamily.info. Um, and then I've got my two books, Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality and Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions. Both are available both in print and ebook form on Amazon and other fine uh, web retailers, that sort of thing. And, uh, yeah, we're just doing our best to put the message out there. You know, obviously I want as many people as possible to get it. I'm not super focused on, am I making a jillion dollars here? I really just want to look back at the end of my life and say, did I make a positive difference? Right. Did I put something in the world that, that felt like I was trying to help people? And while I'm doing that, I sleep pretty well. Fantastic. That is fantastic. Uh, Casey, thank you for coming to the show. I really appreciate you having on, and I'm thinking that um, there's more to be talked about. So I will talk about that off off the off the air here. And uh, I really want to say I appreciate you and your patience for my technical stuff and trying to get there in the scheduling and everything. So you've been a blessing for the show today. Well, thanks. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for the work that you're doing to spread the word too.